Ken Ono, your host and the STEM advisor to the Provost and the Marvin Rosenblum Professor of Mathematics at the University of Virginia. On Who's in STEM, our goal is to showcase the cornucopia of all that is STEM at UVA, the marvelous world of UVA science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Anyone who knows me will tell you that I whine when it's cold out, that I'm obsessed with all things tropical. Think coconut palm trees, sandy beaches, and Mai Tais. My wife, Erica, who grew up an avid skier, and my dog, Mochi, they'll both tell you that I even watch travel vlogs about Hawaii on YouTube. Chances are that you've seen me on ground sporting a Hawaiian shirt. Unlike me, our two guests thrive in worlds of ice and frigid tundras. Think emperor penguins and polar bears. Brrr. We are joined today by UVA environmental scientists Howie Epstein, who studies the North Pole, and Lauren Simpkins, who studies the South Pole. They're here to talk about the mystifying eccentricities of the coldest place on this rock we call home, planet Earth. They will offer insight into our ever-changing climate. But first, let's celebrate. Who's making discoveries, pun intended. UVA Health has launched an ambitious 10-year strategic plan to make UVA one of the nation's premier public academic health systems through new treatments and better integration of technology like the digital front door. Our leaders say that we should expect significant changes that will benefit science and the Commonwealth. Also, researchers at the UVA School of Medicine have discovered a key trigger for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. This mysterious condition causes fat to build up in the liver for no apparent reason. For many, this silent disease progresses without symptoms. The culprits, it seems, are wrinkles that form in the cellular compartments that contain our DNA. Led by Dr. Irina Botchkis, this recent research also offers clues that could lead to treatments and may also shed light on aging itself. And that's Who's Making Discoveries. Follow Who's in STEM on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter for these and other stories. Today we're talking about the environment. Howie Epstein, professor and chair of the Environmental Sciences Department, studies the relationship between vegetation and permafrost in the Arctic tundra. Professor Lauren Simpkins researches how glaciers and ice sheets have transformed over millennia in the Antarctic Circle. Thank you both for joining us today. It's great to be here. Pleasure to be here. For those of us who will never, ever go to the South or North Pole, tell us what they're like. Yeah. Well, the first thing that I can tell you is that even though they're both really cold places, they are completely different. The Arctic, which is in our northern hemisphere, is an ocean, the Arctic Ocean, surrounded by land. And the Antarctic, which is in our southern hemisphere, is a body of land surrounded by an ocean, the Southern Ocean. Um, one of the myths that I think the lay person thinks about when they think about the Arctic tundra is that it's really a barren wasteland. 
that it's covered with ice and snow year round and there's no vegetation. That's not true at all. The Arctic tundra can be a very lush, well-vegetated place. Yeah, it is snow covered probably about nine months or more out of the year. But the summer, the growing season, the snow melts, the vegetation comes out, and animals and insects populate the land. Professor Simpkins, your take? So unlike the Arctic, the Antarctic is untouched in ways that are unimaginable by people who live around people and people-made things. (laughs) (laughs) There have never been permanent populations in Antarctica. And so when you first see this place, it's a huge contrast between dark and light with the little rocks that are exposed, with the huge ice that you see, but there's nothing for scale. You can't tell how far away something is. You can't tell how big something is. And also, probably the most surprising is that the air smells different. Air smells like nothing. With the lack of soil and lots of animals and lots of vegetation, the air smells cleaner than you could ever imagine. Professor Simpkins, I'd like to start with you today. Um, You're a geologist. I have to start by wondering what kind of questions drive your research, despite the fact you study the ends of the earth. So I'm a geologist by training, and geologists do a lot of things. My students always think that I study rocks and minerals, but I don't. I use broken pieces of rocks and minerals and landscapes to reconstruct glaciers and ice sheets in the past. How big were they? Why did they change? How did they grow? How did they decay? And think about the really hard to hard to answer questions today, especially about what's happening beneath glaciers and ice sheets that are really influential in causing that ice to flow off of the landscape and enter the ocean to contribute to sea level. Professor Epstein. Yeah, different from Lauren. I'm an ecologist. I'm a a plant ecologist, and I study vegetation. I study their patterns in space, and I study how vegetation changes over time. And I've been doing this in the Arctic tundra for about 25 years now. I'm also interested in how the vegetation affects ecosystems around it. So I look at things like how vegetation affects carbon cycling through photosynthesis, how it affects the exchange of water between the land and the atmosphere, energy, energy budgets, and also importantly in the Arctic, I try to understand how vegetation affects the frozen ground, the permafrost beneath it. More recently, I'm working in a community called Utqiagvik in Alaska, which is in a community of about 4,500 to 5,000 people, largely indigenous. And we're looking at how their infrastructure, how their built environment influences the natural environment on which their infrastructure sits. Great. Now, you're both environmental scientists, and as a student of all things science, I have to wonder, how do you go about doing your research, the field work, and then the data analysis? Professor Epstein. Yeah, so so the field work is really fun. And because I'm a plant ecologist and I study vegetation, I go to the Arctic during the summer. Depending on where you go, I've got about a three-month or shorter window to do my work. And a lot of the field work that I've done has looked at spatial patterns of tundra vegetation in different places around the globe. So I've worked in Alaska, I've worked in Canada, I've worked in Siberia. And so typically when I go out into the field, I don't have to stay there for a very long time. I might stay for a period of one to four weeks We sample the vegetation that we need. We sample other ecosystem properties. We look at the soils. We look at some meteorological conditions. And depending on where we are, it determines what our conditions, what our living conditions are like. If we're out in the middle of nowhere, we'll set up a camp with a tent where we cook and 
have meals and have common spaces for meetings. Other times, if we're near infrastructure, we'll have lodging available. I've stayed in an oil gas field development camp in Siberia once. It just depends on what's nearby. To look at how vegetation changes through time, some scientists will stay in the same spot and go back year after year. That hasn't been the way my group has operated. We look at how things change over time using satellite data, mm. and we have records that can go back to the early 80s, if not um, before that. Fascinating. Dr. Simpkins. I also incorporate field-based data and work into my research. I also use remote sensing. When I do go into the field or my students do go into the field, we are there for two or three months at a time. And what that looks like is being on a, trapped on a research vessel for two to three months, collecting samples from the seafloor, collecting essentially geophysical images of the seafloor in places that used to be covered by the Antarctic ice sheet and the ice sheet has since retreated inland. And so we use those landforms and those sediments to say something about how fast did retreat happen in the past? How quickly did ice flow in the past? How much did it contribute to sea level and at what periods in the geologic past did it? And more recently, a shift that has happened during the pandemic is that I've been a little bit more resourceful. And also, since I have teaching obligations at UVA, <laughs> I can't be gone every year for two to three months. Um, so I've been more resourceful using published data sets in novel ways, doing data mining, using different databases. And I also just have a new grant that's funded to use sediment cores collected around Antarctica. Some of them were collected in the 1960s. And so mm. to do new and exciting things with those sediment cores that have been long forgotten. Oh, fascinating. Where are these sediment cores? Where are they housed? They are housed at Oregon State. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Okay. So both of you had very interesting starts to your careers and where you didn't initially intend to become an environmental scientist. So for students, tell us about your paths. Professor Simpkins. Well, I would say my path to where I am started as a kindergartner. Teachers positively impacted my life. Um, I was a shy, shy kid. <laughs> I actually got voted most shy in my fifth grade class. When I got to college, I thought that I wanted to be an elementary education teacher. I actually went through that program for three years, and I happened to take a geology class that really changed my perspective on long time scales beyond human time scales, helped me to see our planet in different ways. And from that moment, I would say week two of that geology class, I knew that was it. That was what I was going to do. And also at that moment, I knew I still wanted to teach. So I also committed myself to getting a PhD. And that's what I did. And now I'm here. Mm -hmm. Professor Epstein. Yeah. So Lauren, you grew up in Oklahoma. Right? I did. Yeah. Differently, I was born in New York City. I grew up in New Jersey, and, and I, I never would have imagined that I would be spending my summers in the far reaches of the Arctic. That was just, it, was, it wasn't even <laughs> close. <laughs> it wasn't even close to being anything on, my, anything on my radar. I was a computer science major as an undergraduate student, and I loved, I loved it. I loved coding. I took my first computer science class in what was probably around 1980 in high school, and, and I thought it was the absolute coolest thing, and I, and I knew that's what I wanted to major in. And then I worked in that field in information systems for about six years. And then I was thinking that I would like to do something more interesting with those kinds of analytical skills. 
And my next favorite set of courses were the biology courses that I took. And I thought I would really love to combine computer science with ecology or environmental sciences. And I got really fortunate and I got into a graduate program at Colorado State University where I did my master's in rangeland ecosystem science, PhD in ecology, also at Colorado State. And then uh, as a postdoc is when I first started working in the, in the Arctic tundra. Great. Thank you. What a path. What a path. Professor Simpkins, this is important for all of us. It seems like a daily occurrence that we see news with satellite images of a giant chunk of ice, like the size of New York City or Delaware, breaking off of an ice shelf. How should we all take this news? So this gets back at scale a little bit, right? The Antarctic ice sheet is so large, it's hard to imagine these city-sized pieces of ice breaking off into the ocean. The Brunt Ice Shelf is in East Antarctica, a place that even just a couple decades ago we thought was safe from human-induced climate change. And now we know that there are significant changes in terms of snowfall in East Antarctica as well as changes in the stability of ice shelves, which are floating extensions of the ice sheet as the ice sheet flows into the ocean. So because ice shelf ice is already floating in water, its space has been accommodated for. So that's not contributing to sea level. But there are important feedbacks. If a big piece of ice breaks off, it can cause the upstream ice that was safe on land, it can cause it to flow faster and drain into the ocean faster. And so there are two ways that, that ice can contribute to sea level, either by melting or by putting new ice into the ocean. And so for the Brunt Ice Shelf, this huge iceberg that broke off, it's not directly leading to a sea level rise. It does alert us to the fact that we need to know how ice breaks and we need to know all of the feedbacks that are associated with ice shelves breaking up and what that does to sea level contributions years, 10 years, 100 years down the line. And so when I think about the future, I'm a little bit optimistic because we're narrowing in on the potential outcomes. What could we expect by the end of this century? What can we expect in a couple centuries? We have better observations. We have better models that can help us narrow in on potential outcomes. And that takes this thinking about long time scales and short time scales. I would say that I worry we aren't responding and planning quick enough, right? We need to be thinking about decades and hundreds of years. And often policy is for the right now. Often our budgets are for right now. And so I, I do worry that maybe we're not planning as far in the future as we should. I also worry that we're not teaching our little people who are in elementary school, who are in middle school, what they need to know to be prepared to navigate the world that will exist in decades, hundreds of years. I didn't even know what a glacier was when I was a kid. I spoke to some third and fourth graders a couple weeks ago, and they know what glaciers are, so that gives me some hope. But I think we need to expand that to all school settings, all ages, including adults, right? Right. So I, I have family from Montana, and, well, this is home to Glacier National Park. And in my short lifetime, it may happen that there will be no glaciers in Glacier National Park, and that's frightening and beyond sobering, I think, for all of us. 
Professor Epstein, much of your work focuses on how permafrost and vegetation interact. So can you speak to the ways in which permafrost is critical both for our climate and for the communities that live in and around it? Sure. I can probably safely say that most people don't know what permafrost is or they have some perception of it and it's probably not not correct. Well, it so sounds like ice that's permanent. <laughs> so so I will uh, I'll, first I'll, I'll give you a definition of permafrost. Permafrost is anything in the ground that is below zero degrees Celsius for a period of two years or more. So most people would think of it as, as you did as a layer of ice and it's not a layer of ice. It's anything that's in the ground that's below freezing temperatures. So that can be rocks, it can be soil, it could be dead organic matter, and it could be ice. So there's a component of permafrost that's ice, but in its entirety, permafrost represents a lot of different components of things that we find in the ground. The whole Arctic tundra is underlain by continuous permafrost. Okay, So every part of the tundra has permafrost underneath it. The top layer, which is actually not part of the permafrost, the layer of the ground that thaws every summer, that's called the active layer. And it's not very deep. There's a, maybe a meter or so of thaw every summer. So where that thaw stops, the bottom of that active layer, that's where your permafrost starts. And your permafrost can be meters deep. It can be hundreds of meters deep, depending on where you are and what the, what the conditions are like. One of the neat results that the scientific community has found over the past few years is that the amount of carbon, organic matter, dead organic matter, that's stored in permafrost is twice the amount of carbon that's currently in our atmosphere. So let's say, hypothetically, we thaw all of that permafrost, all of that organic carbon becomes available for microorganisms to decompose it and convert that to either CO2 or methane in the atmosphere, that would effectively triple the amount of carbon that we have in our atmosphere. That's not likely to happen in our lifetimes or maybe for a very long time, but we do know that a fraction of that carbon will be released with warming temperatures. Some of that permafrost is going to thaw. Some of that carbon is going to be decomposed and put back into the atmosphere as carbon dioxide or methane. One of the things that I'm interested in is, is what protects the permafrost. And anything on the surface has the potential to protect the permafrost, to provide insulation, to buffer the really cold air temperatures from the below freezing, but maybe not quite as cold ground temperatures. So the vegetation provides some insulation. So if you have a robust vegetation, that can be protective of permafrost. The snow is a good insulator. So snow is good protection for permafrost. But if you start removing those things, if there are disturbances that remove vegetation or your snow melts, early, that has the potential for making the permafrost vulnerable. In terms of uh, the communities that exist on permafrost landscapes, they can be really vulnerable to permafrost thaw and ground slumping. The buildings themselves warm the ground and the permafrost can thaw. The areas that we really look for, related to your comment about ice, is we look for areas where the permafrost actually does have a very high ice content. Because if I take a rock and I move it from minus one degree Celsius to one degree Celsius, it's still a rock. But if I do that with ice, I go from solid to liquid, I change the density, the ground has the potential to slump, the water has the potential to flow, you get erosion, you get slumping buildings. So it really is important for communities that exist on permafrost 
to be mindful of the stability and vulnerability of permafrost. And we see communities that are, that are actually really suffering, communities that have had to move because of ground slumping and erosion. Professor Simpkins, Professor Epstein, the research that you do affects all of us. So I just have to know if there was one piece of advice, perhaps in policy, that you could make that you want all of our listeners to hear, what would that be? Professor Simpkins. That's a hard one. I don't know if I would go with education or research. Well, there is policy that is, um, or budgets that can be adjusted right now. The United States does not have many ice-breaking vessels, and that's important for research, but also national security in the Arctic and the Antarctic. And now there are drafts for a new icebreaker, and it has not been funded yet. Professor Epstein. I think I'll go with a maybe climate change policy. And with that, I think, well, the idea is to do whatever we can diplomatically to get nations around the world to abide by their plans to reduce carbon emissions. I mean, I think that enforcing those is where we really need the effort. And I realize how hard how hard it is, but I think that we really need policy, not only in the United States, but policies to work diplomatically with other countries to get carbon emissions reduced. So you both work very closely with undergraduate and graduate students. Can you talk about some of your unique philosophies about mentoring young scientists? Professor Epstein. Yeah, I love to get undergraduate students involved in my research. It's probably one of the most rewarding things that I do at UVA. We have a large crew of undergraduates working in my lab. Some of them work directly with me. Others work with graduate students under my uh, supervision. And what we try to do is we try to tailor the interests of students to projects that we put them on. We have a lot of different things going on. So some of our students are, are working in the lab. Some students who are interested in learning coding skills or good coders may work on some simulation modeling. And we even get students in the field sometimes and very occasionally up to the Arctic. Students in the field. So, Professor Simpkins, do you do you bring undergraduates to the South Pole? I haven't brought undergraduate students, but two graduate students actually oh. went in 2020, came back to a changed world in March. Oh, my God. Yeah, they did. Mm-hmm. So, Professor Epstein, if I understand it correctly, the UVA Environmental Sciences Department just celebrated its 50th anniversary, founded in 1969. And in fact, I understand that your department that you chair is the first environmental sciences department in the country. What makes it so unique? Yeah, we were the first department to call themselves an environmental sciences department in the United States, maybe maybe even the world. We arose out of the departments of geology and geography here at UVA. We held on to some of that and broadened ourselves and became something quite different. We try to cover a lot of ground in environmental sciences with the faculty that we have. We teach and do research in ecology, geosciences represented by the two of us here. We also do work in teaching in hydrology and atmospheric sciences. So it's an amazing place to be. For me, because we're so broad, there's nobody like me in the department. So I feel like I'm learning every day. I feel like a student myself. And it's just been a great experience where we do interdisciplinary education and research. Thank you both for being here today. It gives me chills. Uh. <laughs> it gives me chills to hear all the ways you're both <laughs> inspiring us. You're shining examples of President Ryan's vision for UVA, to be great and good in all that we do. So I'd like to thank you both for making the world a better place. I'm Ken Ono. 
STEM advisor to the provost, and Marvin Rosenblum, professor of mathematics. You've been listening to Who's in STEM? Who's in STEM is a production of WTJU 91.1 FM and the Office of the Provost at the University of Virginia. Who's in STEM is produced by Katherine Kossaboom, Rhea Verma, Mary Garner-McGee, and Katherine Hansen. Our music is composed and performed by Robert Schneider and John Ferguson of Apples in Stereo. Listen and subscribe to Who's in STEM on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back soon with another conversation about scientific and technological innovation at the university.